Good morning, everybody. <laughs> this morning, we held a ceremony called Sejiki, the um, providing of peace and nourishment to the departed. And uh, it was a fun time. <laughs> it? Do you still feel the kind of energy in this room? It's delightful to see the, the colors and hear the sounds and be with the people. And it also has very deep meaning and layers of meaning, um, long history. So I wanted to talk about the Seijiki ceremony um, in my understanding, and also how it relates to great compassion, which we've been studying for several weeks now. Um, so this Seijiki ceremony is a traditional Buddhist ceremony, and uh, in it we honor our deceased loved ones, and we also honor unsettled spirits, hungry ghosts, and we honor ourselves. We honor our ancestors. So I think that covers everybody, <laughs> everything. <laughs> and to do this, we kind of create a party atmosphere. Um, we've got an altar here that is um, not usually here, and we screen our typical altar, so it's kind of hidden from view. Um, we make a lot of noise together. Vicky played the trumpet, which is, I just enjoy hearing that every year. <laughs> just a few notes, and um, we all make a, a lot of racket because our understanding is that chaotic sound invites chaotic spirits. This is what they can relate to, so they feel welcomed. And then we invoke them. Uh, before, at the very beginning of the ceremony, um, there were some words kind of stating our intentions and um, uh, setting the stage, I think. And we chant also, and we say homages too. So we're we're really firmly rooting this in a Buddhist practice. So this is a, a little different from other parties you might go to. Unless <laughs> you bring those homages and those intentions with you as you go, which I think is a great idea. So, so anyway, this is how we open. And then um, after the invitation through all beings through noise, um, we invite them through words. And the specific chant that we are Chanting is called the gate of sweet dew or can romon. And uh, it invites the hungry ghosts and it specifically extends the invitation to demonic spirits from, from the untamed wilderness. Um, but we're safe because we're all together and because we are respectful. Um, in Buddhist mythology, the hungry ghosts were beings that have maybe led a very greedy um, or self-centered uh, lifestyle. And then they were reborn in a, a realm where um, they, their craving continued, but they could never satisfy it. Um, they are depicted as beings with big empty bellies and tiny necks that nourishment can't go down. They need help, but they don't know how to get nourished and they don't know how to get help. So um, the compassionate beings that we are, we are 
doing what we can to let them know that we care and we're offering nourishment to them. It's also important to know that this is not like an, an outside exterior concept, the hungry, hungry ghost. We can all relate to this. I assume we can all relate to this in our own selves, this feeling of um, thirsting and, and grasping for something that never quite gets satisfied, no matter how we try to. <clears throat> so when everybody is here at the party, we feed them. And some beans are nourished by snacks and some by incense and all are nourished by the compassion. So we also share the Dharma for any who are listening. I think uh, we're not being pushy. We're just you, you actually found yourself here in a temple, even though you don't see the altar. And so we offer the Dharma. This is what we do. The names of our departed friends and family are invoked aloud during the ceremony. Um, I uh, sometimes get a little cognitive dissonance hearing the names of my cousins this year. It was um, Joyce Montes Hackler and Robert Edwards in a ceremony that I know was created for the pacification, the, the nourishment of hungry ghosts. Uh, seems a little painful to think that my cousins could be hungry ghosts, but no matter, we're going to take care of them anyway. I think it helps to know a little bit about the origin of the ceremony. Um, there's a sutra called the Ulambana Sutra, and you can find a, a translation online. It's a short sutra, and uh, the translation goes back to I think about 1600s China, and, it, and that translation probably came from an earlier translation. Um, it's called The Buddha Speaks the Ulambana Sutra. Um, Buddha's great disciple, uh, Magagayana, or Mogayana in, in Pali, found his deceased mother in um, the hungry ghost realm. And he was very distressed about finding her there and wanted to help her. He had extraordinary power. So he was able to go to his mother in this realm and he offered her food, but the food became charcoal and burned her lips. She couldn't eat it. So what he was trying to do for her was actually hurting her more and um, was extremely distraught. So he came to the Buddha and told the Buddha about this experience. And the Buddha said, let's have a ceremony for your mother, but also for all parents and all ancestors back seven generations. And in the ceremony, we are going to provide the best food and a lot of it, like a hundred recipes. And there will be oil and uh, lamps. I think the, the oil is for the lamps. There will be candles, there'll be beds and bedding also, <clears throat> all the comforts of home provided in the ceremony. And the very critical element is that it's not just Mogagayana, it's the whole Sangha together are going to be part of the ceremony because he himself, as powerful as he is, cannot reach his mother in this realm. And 
In fact, nobody can by themselves, but all together they can. So besides the offerings of this event, um, they also, in this original Seijiki ceremony, did chanting and they did meditation and they recited their vows just like we did today. So here we are in a ceremony that feels very current and very alive uh, and fresh, and it has thousands of years of history. Why do we do it? Well, we do it out of compassion. In the chant, we tell everyone at the party what we in intend for them. Do you remember we, in the Gate of Sweet Dew, we said, so that you and the many sentient beings will be satisfied, so that you may depart from suffering, be liberated, find birth in heaven and receive joy. We said, may you travel freely through the pure lands and the 10 directions. May you arouse wakened mind, practicing the awakened way. So that in the future, you become a Buddha without regressing. So that every being will equally receive this fortunate offering. So that all may speedily attain Buddhahood without incurring any other destinies. The very kind wishes. I liked uh, reading those again um, because sometimes when you're reading a chant, the, the specifics don't stay with you, you know, they kind of wash over you, right? And so coming back and looking at those lines again was very special to me. We can approach all this with different perspectives, but not mutually exclusive perspectives. There's the psychological perspective. Uh, we're in the ceremony, we're wishing ourselves and others well with our unsettled states, our hungry, grasping states, our lost and lonely states. Um, you know, being called from the wildernesses of our mind to be together here in presence. And we're inviting parts of ourselves that we ordinarily might consider other right? Those demonic parts, those untamed and those frightening parts, bringing them together and in a way that we, uh, we don't have to turn away from them. And we are respectful and we acknowledge them and we offer care to these parts of ourselves that often shut away in the darkness. It's also acknowledge, acknowledging that we're haunted that we have ghosts of things that have happened to us that resonate in our lives now. They may come back around and around in un unexpected ways to haunt us, losses and grief, and, um, disappointments, depressions. So I think we can all relate to this psychological aspect where we're, we're really deeply embedded in what we're doing here in this ceremony. And I also want to talk about maybe a literal aspect to this, right? More literal. Can we handle a literal interpretation of a ceremony, the ceremony? This chant called out the names of our departed friends and family. What does it mean to actually have them hear this calling and be here? What could it mean? 
Um, we spoke to all the hungry ghosts in every land, to the farthest reaches of vast emptiness in the 10 directions, including every atom, every atom full of ghosts. What is that? And furthermore, we invited our de departed ancestors going back to ancient times. Who are these people coming here? If you're like me, you kind of want to say, well, this is a kind of a medieval thinking. It's an analogy. It's unscientific. Done. Let's talk about the psychological again. Yeah. But what if we just open the door with compassion to see what showed up? And, uh, and be open to that. Either way, it's an opportunity to see our mind in action. And like I said, I see my, my scientist training mind kind of stuff concepts back down into a manageable box. <laughs> but we know from our practice that things are not what we see in the box, right? They're not the label that we give them. I like the example of Jizo Bodhisattva. Like is not even the word for that. He's a great role model for this. Um, Jizo is traditionally the protector of women, children, unborn and aborted babies, and travelers. And she goes where the suffering beings are to bring them comfort. It's a big job, all those beings from unborn babies to people who are in hell because um, there's a lot of suffering in hell. That's where Jizo goes. When I first heard about Jizo Bodhisattva, I was in a different faith tradition. I was practicing Catholicism. No, I was a lapsed Catholic, but that was my origin story. And in Catholicism, my understanding anyway, is that people, beings in hell, they deserved it. They were judged by God. They were sent there. So it's okay to consider them despicable. Not only that, they're going to be there for eternity. And, and the reading about the work of Jizo Bodhisattva, he goes because there's no, no hell for eternity. Everybody will eventually become a Buddha, even those beings in hell. So this is why Jizo goes, to bring kindness. Kindness in hell, that was revolutionary. And I'm, I, I know that's part of the little nudge I got to practice Buddhism. So it's a great way of uh, demonstrating how to deal with fear and, and unwholesome mental states through compassion. He shows us. And the last few Dharma talks, both the one that uh, Roshi Rabbi Anderson gave from um, the, the Auspicious Cloud West retreat, <coughs> and last week, uh, we were talking about the teaching by Muso Soseki of the three faces of great compassion. And I see that in this ceremony. So I want to say a little bit about that. I haven't read this work that, that they were teaching the um, 
dialogues in a dream that Soseki, who was a 13th century monk, um, recorded. So I may kind of like stumble over some of this, but in true Zen fashion, I've learned from my teacher who's learning from her teacher and so on. So I'll present my understanding. Uh, compassion means to suffer together literally. And often it's defined as that feeling that you have that you want to help someone who's suffering. But in fact, it's not a feeling. It's like a whole mind-body state that when you see suffering, you feel motivated to do something to alleviate that suffering. In this teaching, there's, a, there's like three aspects of compassion that we can kind of pull apart, but then they snap back together because it's a whole, right? Um, one is sentimental compassion or referential compassion. And this is the one that um, we may readily, most readily respond to. We, we see this um, often, hopefully we see this often, hopefully we live like where we see often, um, compassion by one being for another. And in the ceremony, in the Sejiki ceremony, we're speaking the names of uh, people that we know or knew because we want them to know that we cared for them and we care for them still. We um, know the feeling of being forgotten. It's suffering and we want to, to let them know that we care and we haven't forgotten. So the object of our compassion was the people that we remember. In whatever form they are now, we remember them as in the forms that they used to be. So this, our compassion is directed to them. And this is what is called um, sentimental compassion, or I've heard it called referential compassion because it refers to something, a person, an animal, a thing, even a thoughts. Another aspect of great compassion is um, the, the bodhisattva compassion or dharma compassion or insight compassion. And um, I don't remember the name that was being used for number two. Mahayana compassion is one. Mahayana compassion. Yeah. Um, this is compassion that is based on expressing the Dharma and it's Bodhisattva's compassion where she hears or sees the suffering of the world and is compelled to be ready to alleviate it. And I think that the example of covering the altars for this ceremony illustrates this. Um, we are doing this because we feel like there are causes and, con causes and conditions which led to um, these unsettled beings not feeling welcome in a temple, not feeling welcome in a place where um, there's wholesomeness. And so we hide something that might be intimidating or make people feel like they're not welcome. And then we provide the noise and we provide the food, not only like the wholesome fruits, 
but the brownies maybe for unsettled being this is this is what you need is junk food you want you want junk food so yeah get junk food and hopefully we'll all get to taste some of those things too. <laughs> but um uh, we're doing it out of compassion not because we want anybody to just thrive on junk food alone or not see the buddha but because we understand that the 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 conditions have come together that this is the most expedient way to reach beings who may be in this state. Another aspect, the third aspect is non-referential compassion. This doesn't, is not triggered by an object. It doesn't refer to any particular thing. And um, it's a it's universal compassion. So I didn't think I had an example of that to illustrate in this ceremony, but I I had an experience this week, which which may be an example of this great compassion, true compassion aspect of great compassion, and um, maybe you all can. Weigh in on whether you think it falls into one category or the other. Um, so you notice there's a fad for really loud cars. <laughs> you know, and I mean, I, it's the sound of a missing catalytic catalytic converter. But I think it's like so popular that people must sort of jack up their car somehow just to get the sound. It's not just because someone stole the catalytic converter, you know? It's really predominant, um, especially where I live in Alvin. And, um, you know, without the catalytic converter and all those, there's, there's precious metals inside, like things that cost way more than gold to the point where that to um, respond to this epidemic of stealing catalytic converters, for the precious metals like rhodium, um, manufacturers are thinking about using gold instead because it's cheaper. So each converter has like, like $200 to $1,000 worth of this stuff in it. And so it's pretty, pretty valuable, um, even though it's just a thin layer. And um, without a catalytic converter, the exhaust hydrocarbons and the um, nitrous oxides and carbon monoxide are just pouring out of the vehicle. So um, it, it's very polluting, right? So last week I was listening to wrap up of the climate talks in Paris in my car. And I heard one of these farting cars go by. And I had this just upwelling of compassion. not what I expected it just happened and then a moment later the cognition or the narration kicked in like explaining what I felt to myself saying you know we are all so effed up on this planet <laughs> but that was that was like words trying to kind of go at it and missing the the, the welling the, the flood of compassion was 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 it you know that, that was it um, so that may have been this true compassion that Soseki speaks of. And, uh, 
And then after the ceremony, um, Galen Roshi was standing next to me and she leaned in and said, it was very powerful this year. And I thought, I wonder if that was like, her words were like my saying, we are so effed up on this planet. It doesn't touch it, but you say something, you know, like there was that experience. And I, 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 I don't know her experience, not the 10,000 sages do, only she does. But she says words that reminded me of this true compassion, this effort to convey the true compassion in words. So perhaps. Well, why do I think this is important? I, I think that the, the cultivation of compassion is important because you're much more likely to respond in an appropriate way when um, you're settled. Oh, I'm, another thing about that, that experience with the catalytic converters, when I felt the compassion, I didn't feel any anger. It was like all that was quelled, my usual irritation. Um, but I, I would, it was no lessening of concern. So it was like the end of anger for a moment. And the, like, the, the concern was just as strong. So because of that experience, I feel like this, um, recognizing and expressing compassion and understanding all these aspects help us to respond in a way that uh, is more helpful when, when we're not seething and when we're not like dissociated by misery, we're much more likely to respond in a way that's actually going to be beneficial. So in closing, let's um, take the, the Seijiki party experience with open minds and hearts and seeing and expressing all three facets of great compassion. We're gonna go in like Jizo Bodhisattva like Maha Magalyana and the wise ancestors who were just like us. <laughs>